you brought a Bible with you this morning, would you open to the Gospel of Luke? Luke chapter 18, verse 1. Now, while you're turning there, I want to share a joke with you. It's a pretty good one. Johnny, a very bright five-year-old, told his daddy that he'd like to have a baby brother, and along with his request, offered to do whatever he could to help. His dad, a very bright 35-year-old, paused for a moment and then replied, I'll tell you what, Johnny, if you pray every day for two months for a baby brother, I guarantee that God will give you one. Johnny responded eagerly to his dad's challenge and went to his bedroom early that night to start praying for a baby brother. He prayed every night for a whole month, but after that time, he began to get skeptical. He checked around the neighborhood and found out that what he thought was going to happen had never occurred in the history of the neighborhood. You don't just pray for two months and then whammo, new baby brother. So Johnny quit praying. After another month, Johnny's mother went to the hospital. When she came back home, Johnny's parents called him into the bedroom. He cautiously walked into the room, not expecting to find anything. And there was a little bundle lying right next to his mother. His dad pulled back the blanket, and there was not just one baby brother, but two. His mother had twins. Johnny's dad looked down at him and said, Now, aren't you glad you prayed? Johnny hesitated a little and then looked up at his dad and said, Yep, but aren't you glad I quit when I did? That's pretty good. That is pretty good. Well, following that same line of thinking, Jesus told the disciples a parable. I want you to listen to this. John chapter 18, verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. There was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now let's pray together. Father in heaven, we need a lot of understanding from this passage. For some, it's just confusing. For others, it asks more questions than it answers. For some, it's painful. It's a painful reminder that they've been praying for the same thing repeatedly for years. Asking and asking and asking, and it has appeared that you weren't listening. So, Lord, that's, that's brought wounds into their life and into their heart. Maybe they were already there, and it's just ripped some scabs off. So they need understanding. I pray that you'll provide it. And I pray that through that understanding, for whatever reason we need it, you'll inspire us to pray and never stop. In Jesus' name, amen. We have spent the last few weeks looking at the subject of prayer, and we're going to do that for at least two more weeks. I wanted to preach this message today because it is so relevant for all of us. We find ourselves at some point offering the same prayers over and over and over again, and it almost always brings up a myriad of questions. We might ask things like this, if God is really omniscient, if He knows everything, why is it even necessary for us to pray? 
If God knows everything, if he truly is omniscient, then why, heaven tell us, do we have to continue praying for the same thing over and over and over again? It leaves us wondering all the time, if God really does know everything about me, if he knows everything about the world, if he knows everything about time, if God knows what will happen today, tomorrow, 10 years from now, 100 years from now, if he doesn't return before that, then why do I need to pray? There's a simple answer for that, because God says so. That's why. But then we'll find ourselves saying, then why do we have to keep offering the same prayers over and over and over and over again? The same answer rings true, because God says so. You see, Luke chapter 18 mirrors some other teaching in Scripture. Let me show it to you. If you're a note taker in your Bible, you might want to write these references in the margin next to Luke 18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Turn that direction with me. The Apostle Paul says these words, short little verse, but so powerful. Verse 17, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17, pray continually. Some translations of the Bible say, pray without ceasing. It's a command. God tells us that we're supposed to do it. Pray continually. doesn't matter if you've offered the prayer once or a thousand times, you keep on praying. There are models of that that we can find in Scripture. Turn back just one book to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, and you can see one of those models. Again, this is the Apostle Paul. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul's been praying for the same people over and over and over again, and he's been offering the same prayer. He wants them to experience something, and he's going to pray until they do. It's a model in the Bible that matters, so much so that Jesus would actually dedicate a parable to the teaching. He wanted us to understand that it's significant, that we're supposed to go before God, even though he is all-knowing, with our request, and make sure that we don't ever stop. In order to understand this spiritual discipline, it is probably best if we just jump back into that story in Luke chapter 18. That's one of the best ways for us to understand this. It begins with the very first sentence in the way that Jesus started in this teaching. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Now that was his purpose for the parable. That was his purpose for the story. He wanted all of his disciples, every believer, during that time and today to understand the significance of prayer and persistence within it. But he employs a really kind of strange teaching technique. And Jesus used all kinds of different techniques to get people's attention. This happens to be one of them. He spoke to storms to demonstrate his power. Sometimes he would do that in response to the request of his disciples. Other times, Jesus would just do it because he could. He would speak to the weather and the weather would change. If it was a raging storm, it would calm down and become very peaceful. And through that, Jesus would demonstrate his power. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. All of that was to give glory to his Father and to show people what he was capable of. Sometimes Jesus would teach in, in long, drawn-out settings to thousands of people as they filled a hillside underneath him. On the Mount of Beatitudes, you can see where thousands of people sat at his feet, and he shared with them things that would change their lives. It took a long time for him to do that. 
Sometimes he actually had to send the disciples out to get food and come back and feed them. He'd been teaching that long. Other times, he would simply speak in sound bites, short little messages that he wanted to drive home. He performed miracles more numerous than we could even list. More numerous, the Bible says, than that could be contained in a library of books. Jesus worked miracles. All of those were ways that he would teach. He would even use the visual at times. Those were some of my favorite. Here's an example of that. We're kind of off track a little bit, but follow me through this. We'll go to the Gospel of Mark. Or Mark 11, starting in verse 12. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. Now listen to verse 20. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and, it, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. I love the visual way that Jesus taught this. Now, you heard the whole thing for yourself. There was a fig tree. Jesus cursed it. It withered. Peter remembered it. And Jesus then had the opportunity to teach on prayer and the power that sits behind it. He used that technique to drive home the point that he wanted to drive home. Well, back in Luke chapter 18, he uses a different teaching technique. This one is from the absurd. He shared an absurd story to illustrate what he was trying to get across. You heard all of it for yourself. Didn't it make you kind of wonder why Jesus would actually share that? Now follow me through all of the incidents that he laid out. He said, we have a wicked judge that didn't care about anybody. He had this position of power and authority, but there was no compassion in his heart whatsoever. We had a widow that had been wronged in some capacity. So she was coming to the judge to ask for justice over and over and over again. Now, you have to understand how that worked. Judges during that time didn't sit on a bench in a courthouse. They sat by the city gates. Anybody could approach them. So she came up to the judge day after day after day saying, hey, you have to do something to help me. And the judge ignored her, just completely ignored her. He wanted her to go away. He didn't want to have to deal with her. He could not have cared less. And then Jesus goes on to say, but finally he responded. He responded out of, well, really just antagonism. She kept coming over and over and over again. She wore him down, so he responded. But he also responded out of fear that she was never going to stop. He was never going to make this woman go away. So he gave her what she wanted. 
the absurd parts of that story come when we flip the nickel over and we look at what he's trying to teach us about God. If God really loves us and we have a relationship with him, a love relationship with him, do you think he's going to treat us that way? Absolutely not. When God responds to us, it's not going to be out of antagonism or fear. He's going to respond to us out of compassion and caring because he knows what's best for us. That's how God responds when we pray. Luke chapter 18 helps us see the absurd nature of the opposite way it can be done that we can really understand so that we can really understand how important it is for us to pray how important it is for us to remain persistent in those prayers and never give up. Because tucked away at the end of that passage, back in Luke chapter 18, is this amazing little teaching. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now that's a good question. When the Son of Man comes to respond to your prayers, what's he going to find? Will he find faith? Are you still praying in faith? Or has that diminished? God's going to be looking for that very thing. He's searching your heart to see what's there. Now that's some of the great teaching that ties all of Luke chapter 18, at least these verses that we read together. What's he going to find when he comes? Now let me illustrate that for you in kind of a unique way. I want you to imagine that a fellow comes into the church office. We don't know him, and he's never been here before. He just knows that this is a place where folks can come to get some help. He asked if he could talk to one of the pastors, myself, Danny, or Matt. And, of course, whoever's at the front desk says, well, let me find one of them for you. So we take him back into our office, and after a, a few moments of small talk, we finally ask what brought him here, and, and he says, well, my wife left me. And, of course, we ask why. What happened? And this is his response. We hear it pretty regularly. I worked too much. I ignored her needs. I wasn't paying attention to her. Now, she had told me a few times that she was getting fed up with it, but I never listened even to those warnings. And the other day when I came home, she had packed everything up and she was gone. I want her back. I want a chance to fix things, to make it right, to do it the right way. I've been praying and asking God to bring her home, but she won't even talk to me, let alone come home. I need some help. Well, as we listen to the conversation, we hear him using the same word over and over and over again. He keeps saying, I, I, I. And we're able to point out to him that at this point, everything that he has said to us and more than likely everything that he has said to God is all about him. It's all about his selfishness. It may very well be that the reason that God has not responded yet to his request is because he hasn't really changed anything. He's still on the exact same path, the exact same track he was on. It's all about him. And until such a time that he can see his wife's needs and the hurt that exists in her life, God isn't going to respond. God is doing something within him that has to be done before the response can come about. But he'll say to us, but I've been praying every night that God would bring her home, that God would just let us talk. She won't even answer my phone calls, at which time we say, well, there's a reason for that. You haven't let God finish the work that he needs to do in your life, and you're trying to make him now do something in her life, and God just doesn't work that way. Not at all. And he says, well, I'm starting to struggle in my belief. 
I'm not even sure there is a God now because look at how badly I'm hurt. At which time we stop him and say, yep, look at yourself again. Pay attention to yourself again. God's trying to change that. So then he says, well, okay, if I get all of that changed, then is she going to come home? And this is where things get a little bit sticky. We have to say, God is also doing something else. And you need to trust him in this. He is at work in her life. Just because in relational situations, we ask God for something, that does not mean, and it certainly does not guarantee, that God is going to remove the free will from the other person. God doesn't do that. So God has to spend some time working in their heart, in this illustration, in her heart, to get her in a place that she could even be responsive to her husband again. So God is at work in the whole thing. And yes, you're praying over and over and over again for the same thing, but you have to trust that God is at work. God is doing something here. Give Him time to do it. Stop muddying up the water and trying to take control yourself. Focus on the needs of other people, but more importantly, focus on what God is doing in your life. And you keep on praying. And we encourage people all the time. You pray and you don't give up. You pray without ceasing about this. But you have to pray in such a way that the intensity of your prayer continues to grow. Because if it doesn't, it really isn't going to amount to anything at all. You're not giving God anything to respond to. Let me show you what I'm talking about. We're going to go to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 6 gives us great insight into these types of prayers. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Now let's stop right there for just a second. Here's what's happening. This is post-rapture in end times teaching. People that were left after the church was caught up and taken to heaven. Many of them will become Christians. A number of them will be Jews. A few will be Gentiles. And the Bible would tell us that they will be martyred for their faith. They will lose their heads because they have become Christian. Now they're in heaven and they're around the throne of God and and they're saying repeatedly, how long, God, are you going to let this go on? That's a prayer that a lot of us have offered over the course of the past two years as we have watched Christian after Christian after Christian lose their life for their faith in the Mideast. How long, God, are you going to let this go on? Well, that's what they're crying out, but from a very personal standpoint. How long, God, are you going to let these people continue doing what they're doing? How many more people have to die? So listen to what God says. This is verse 11. Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. Now, here's Phil's translation of that. You hold on. I'm at work here. You hold on. I got something going on. God's saying, you hold on. I'm doing something. And I'm, I'm going to bring it all around in the right time. But you hold on because I have something going on here. Well, our friend in this story needs to hear that exact same message. You hold on because God's doing something. And you keep on praying. You keep on bringing it before God. Don't you give up. 
The people that give up rob themselves of the opportunity to see God's power. They rob themselves of the miracle. They rob themselves of seeing the things that God is going to accomplish. Revelation chapter 6, prayers help us understand how we're supposed to approach that. You keep on praying, but you keep on trusting. And you put it all before God, believing that He is in control because there's no one better than that. I am not a craftsman by any definition of the word. In fact, in every capacity that you might try to use that word, I'm going to fall short. I'm just not a craftsman, not at all. But there are a lot of people in this room right now that are. They have unique gifts to make something beautiful out of nothing. Let me just target one group of those people, the folks who love classic cars. Sitting right over here to my right, there's Jesse James and Ivan Troyer. Both of them love classic cars, and both of them are craftsmen with classic cars. So here's what they'll do. They have a list of cars that they would love to have. They have searched and searched and searched to try to find that very car. When they found it, it was nothing but a rusted out, rat-infested, nasty-looking piece of junk. And they brought it home. Both of them did. And they were thrilled. Their eyes light up. The worse shape it's in, the greater joy they find. So they drag this mess home, park it in the garage, and then they go to work on it. When they go to work on it, they start sanding on the rust, they start rewiring, they start doing all these different kinds of things, and they have restored those vehicles. Both of them have done it. They have restored those vehicles to pristine shape. They're absolutely gorgeous. Look like they just rolled off the assembly line. So then they drive them around for a little while, they show them to some close friends, and then they do the stupidest thing ever. And I don't mean that to attack you. Well, I kind of do because it's stupid. This is what they do. They put a for sale sign in their car and they sell it. They sell it. Why in the world? Ivan, that was a beautiful truck. Ivan sold the truck. Do you know why he did it? It's because Ivan and Jesse both love the process more than they love the product. They love the process more than the product. So they're out looking for another rusted out, rat-infested, nasty-looking piece of yard art from somebody's pasture. They drive the thing home or they drag it home and they start over again. And they get it back to that same spot where it's in pristine shape and then they put a for sale sign in it and they sell the thing. It makes no sense to me. And I have come to understand that a majority of craftsmen are exactly like that. They love the process a whole lot more than they love the product. But listen to me. God is a master craftsman, and he loves the product more than the process, but he understands the value of the process, and prayer is the process that God uses to get the product, us, to where we need to be. God loves the product more than the process, but he understands the value of the process, and that's a master craftsman at work, and what he brings about is gorgeous. It's just gorgeous. Now, let me show you the way this works couple different passages that will illustrate it. We'll go first to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, 
My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Now, this is the perfect illustration of what we're talking about. The product, the end result that God is after is the alignment of His will with His Son's will. You heard Jesus praying, not my will, but yours be done. That was the product, the end result. The process was the repeated prayer. Three different times in the same account, Jesus was back on his face pleading with God that this cup could be taken from him. But if not, then Lord put me in a place where I'm ready to accept this. The Gospel of Luke says that Jesus prayed so hard that there were tears of blood coming down his face. That's earnest prayers. That was the process that was necessary. There are other places that we see the same thing illustrated. In order to really see it, we need to start in the book of James. Go to James chapter 5 with me. Verse 17. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Now at the very end of verse 16, we read these words. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Now, obviously, James was saying that Elijah was a righteous man. And if all you ever do is read that account from the book of James, then you're going to believe that Elijah prayed and it stopped raining. And then you're going to believe that he prayed and it started raining. And there was a three and a half year gap between the two prayers. That is not the case. So let's go back to the book of 1 Kings in the Old Testament. 1 Kings chapter 18. Now, here's what's happening. Ahab and Jezebel are ruling the land. They are wicked beyond all imagination. So God has told Elijah that he's going to stop rain from falling on the land. And Elijah prayed that it would happen. And the rain stopped. It just stopped. For three and a half years, no one was able to water their crops. No rain fell on the land. They were getting hungry and thirsty. And Ahab, this wicked king, knew that Elijah was responsible for it. It was his prayer that stopped the rain. So he had tried several different times to call Elijah out. Finally, at one of those points, Elijah said, all right, here I am, let's do some battle. They went up on Mount Carmel where they faced off Elijah and God on his side and Ahab with his false prophets on his side. They went to battle with one another and of course, Jehovah God came out on the winning side. And then something very unique happened. After God had demonstrated his power, Elijah said, now it's going to rain again. I want you to listen to what he says to Ahab. We're in chapter 18 starting in verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, go eat and drink, for there is the sound of heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. No rain had fallen yet. In fact, as we go on in this story, you're going to find out that really the sound of heavy rain was only heard through Elijah's ears. Verse 43. 
Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. Elijah had already declared that rain was about to fall on the land. He had told Ahab to go take care of business, get off this mountain, because we're about to get hit with a deluge. The problem is this. There was not a cloud in the sky. So Elijah is down on his, his uh, hands and knees. He is praying, earnestly praying that God would do something. He sends his servant to look at the sea. Servant comes back and says, hey, boss, I got bad news for you. There's not a cloud anywhere in the sky. So he prays again, sends the servant back. Servant comes back again and says, hey, it ain't getting any better. This is, this is a bad deal. In fact, I'm getting sunburned, boss. I don't know what we're going to do about this. Ahab is not a kind man. What are we going to do about this? Eight times Elijah prayed the same prayer until finally this happens. The seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Isn't that great? Tiny little cloud out over the sea. And Elijah says, you better get out of here, you're going to get stuck. That is not a four-wheel drive chariot, you are in trouble. You're driving a Chevy, you need to get out of here. Verse 45. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose, a heavy rain came on, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came, along, came upon Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. And the Bible doesn't say it, but we can believe it. He was soaked when he got there. Eight times he had to pray. Persistence matters. Persistence matters. At any point... In either of those stories, with Jesus or Elijah, do you get the impression, we can even put this widow in from Luke 18, do you get the impression in any of those accounts that their prayers were diminishing in intensity? Not at all. They were growing in intensity. They were growing in power. As they were pleading with, whether it was the judge or whether it was with God, doesn't matter, they were growing in intensity. We tend to reverse that. We ask God for something. God doesn't respond, or at least we don't think he's responding, and so we weaken our prayer. We ask the second time, no response. Our prayer gets weaker. We ask the third time, our prayer gets weaker until finally we just stop asking. We're like the little boy that wanted a, a brother. After a month of asking, if we don't believe it's possible, we stop praying. Well, folks, you've got to reverse that. You pray and you never stop, and in fact, you put more and more power behind those prayers every time you offer it, and you don't stop, ever, because God is at work, and He's going to remain at work until He accomplishes His purposes. So then people will say, okay, I, I get all that, but how am I supposed to do this when patience is so hard? How am I supposed to pray when it is so difficult to wait on God. Well, the first step in that process is simply to evaluate where your faith is at. If your faith is in a magic formula that you believe you just have to utter the right words and God will respond, you're going to be frustrated for a long time. Unless your faith, as we talked about last week, is in the relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, your prayers are always going to struggle. So you've got to pray within the relationship, trusting that God cares about you, the product, and He understands the value of the process to get you to where you need to be. You trust that. In faith, you trust that. 
And then you ask yourself what you've been praying for. What have you actually put before God? Now let me show you what I'm talking about. We're going to go to the Gospel of Mark again. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown, among his relatives and in his own house, is a prophet without honor. He cannot do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Jesus couldn't perform any miracles in his hometown among people that knew who he was. Not only had they heard the stories of what he had done, they knew who he was. But their faith was so weak They didn't ask anything of God. He performed no miracles. Now, it's quite interesting that it says he only laid his hands on a few people and he healed the sick and then he left performing no miracles. Now, let's stop here for just a second and look at this. In 90% of the prayer gatherings that I am in and the prayer meetings that I am in and many of you the same way, the list that is made is of the infirmed, of people that are sick, that have health problems. That's what we pray for more than anything else. And by the way, the Bible tells us we're supposed to. So those are good prayers. But folks, they are safe prayers. And they don't involve tons of faith. Sometimes they do, but they're really not asking that much of God. Look at what happened right here. Jesus laid his hands on some sick people and he healed them. And the Bible doesn't say they ever asked him to. He just did it because that's what God does. God heals sick people. Now, we're supposed to pray for them, no question about that, but we pray that God will get the glory for the healing, not just that they'll be healed. We pray that God will get the glory for what happens. When we find passages like this where it says that there wasn't much faith there, listen to exactly how the Bible records this, and he was amazed at their lack of faith, a bunch of faith healers will actually distort that verse to say that when they come into a community and they're trying to have these healing services where they lay their hands on people and they pray that they'll be healed, if they're not healed, they'll say it's because of their lack of faith and they will use this verse to try to drive their point home. And it's a total distortion of the verse. The verse has nothing to do with healing. The verse has to do with the lack of faith of the people in Jesus' hometown to even bring anything before him. That's what their lack of faith was all about. It's not a bush to hide behind when we don't get what we want, even if we're the faith healer. It's a total understanding of the fact that these folks didn't believe enough to ask. What are you asking God for? What are you putting before Him? Is your prayer life dictated by, Lord, please make this person better, make this sick person well, would you heal this person, would you heal that person? Those are good prayers, but they're safe. And in many ways, they're pretty hollow. Are you actually asking God for something in faith? Because remember, when the Son of God comes to answer your prayers, that's what He's looking for. He's looking to see if your faith is strong. Or has it diminished the more you have prayed? Has it gotten weaker and weaker and weaker the longer you have gone? If that's the case, you've got to reverse some things. You keep on praying and you pray with more power and more intensity. Now, that doesn't mean more words and it doesn't mean that you get louder like you're talking to somebody that doesn't speak your language, so you scream at them. It just means you you talk to God and you don't stop. 
and you believe in passages like this in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. You believe that and you pray accordingly and see what God will do. Well, we can't leave this then without answering this question. What if God doesn't answer my prayer? What if I never see that answer? How do I handle that? Soren Kierkegaard actually has a great quote that helps answer that question. Take a look at this. God possesses all good gifts, and His bounty is greater than human understanding can grasp. This is our comfort, because God answers every prayer, for either He gives us what we pray for, or something far better. Isn't that the truth? So sometimes God doesn't give us what we ask for because He wants to give us something far better. That's really the the hope that we can hold on to. God is giving us something better. And sometimes that means He has to say no. The biggest fight I ever remember having with my dad had to do with a 1982 Mercury Capri. I had been working all summer long at a refinery. I'd made a lot of money, and I was going to buy my first car all on my own. Now, there's a reason for that. The first car my dad bought for me was a 1974 Pinto station wagon with wood panels. <laughs> I did not necessarily trust his judgment. And so now it's, it's up to me, and I was ready to buy my first car on my own. I'd found this Mercury Capri. It was a knockoff Mustang, but it it looked close enough. So I was kind of excited about it. I had the money for it. I took my dad to see it. He drove it. We got back to the car lot. He said, whatever you do, do not buy this car. I said, but dad, this this is my car. He said, don't buy this car. I said, dad, I really want this car. He said, there's problems with this car. Don't buy this car. I said, dad, I really want the car. He said, it's your money. You can do whatever you want, but I wouldn't buy this car. Wait, there's something better out there. I said, no, dad, there's never going to be anything better than this car right here. (laughs) So I bought the car. Nine months later, when I was standing on the side of the road and flames were coming out from underneath the hood, I'm not exaggerating. Tina was there. She saw it. Flames coming out from underneath the hood. I heard my dad saying, don't buy this car. There's something better. I didn't pay attention. How often do we do the same thing with God? Sometimes we believe that God's not answering, and He is, and He is answering in a love relationship with us when He says, you just slow down. There is something better. You just wait. There is something better. And sometimes we will not realize that answer until we get to heaven. That may be where the something better is at. But if you trust God, you pray your way there and you keep on praying. And if you find yourself like you're hitting a brick wall over and over and over again, you keep on praying and you increase your intensity. You just keep on talking to God about it. And maybe he isn't going to answer until you get to be in his presence. But when you're there, oh boy, things are going to be amazing. We don't know who actually wrote this poem, but Bob Russell is the one who shared it That when I saw it, and so I want to make sure he gets credit for it. Take a look at this. Speaking of heaven, no dust, no rust, no rats, no rot, no roxious rock, no potent pot, no growing old with weakened sight, no denture slipping when you bite, no bombs, no guns, no courts, no jails, where all succeed and no one fails, no strikes, no layoffs, full employment, and everyone with job enjoyment. All tell the truth, state only facts, no wars, no debts, no income tax. 
According to this dream of mine in heaven, no one stands in line, and there are only smiling faces and lots and lots of parking places. That's pretty good. Sometimes that's the best that's coming. There's something better out there. You keep on praying and don't stop. Why don't you stand and pray with us now? Father in heaven, thank you for this parable. Thank you for the teaching that surrounds it. I pray that you'll help us learn it and live it and share it. I pray, Lord, that you will intensify our prayers not by magnifying the words, but by stretching our faith. And I pray, Father, that when you come and and you look deep within us as the righteous judge, that you'll see us for who we really are, and you'll see our relationship for what it really is. I pray, Father, that you'll find great faith. And I pray that it will be mirrored in our persistent prayers. I know, Lord, that there are people here that are stuck in the middle of relational battles. They need responses. I pray they'll get it. There are others that are climbing impossible financial hills. They need help. I pray they'll find it. There are others that at work are struggling on a regular basis and they need things to smooth out. I pray, Lord, you'll smooth it out. But I pray you'll make us all patient while we wait. There are others that need miracles We'll just leave a blank here so that that can be filled in. Lord, I pray they'll get it. But I pray that they won't see it until they're bold enough to ask. So, Lord, make us bold. In Jesus' name, amen.